What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I really don't have anything to say. Uh, Nothing exciting has gone on in my life. I had the kids all week, and it was a short week because of the holiday, and it was the longest week on earth at work, which even went out with a bang at the very, very end of the day today uh, with a minor crisis that I handled like a champion. Uh... Yeah, the only things I only stories to tell is just of me of my kids. Yesterday, um, my youngest daughter she has my old record player, and she's been wanting to use it, and I could never find a needle for it. I bought one on Amazon, and it was the wrong one, so that was really annoying. And uh, bought a tuner to plug that thing into, and everything, but just sat there. So yesterday. Um, to cheer the kids up because they've been having some annoying time at school, even though school's almost done. I don't know what they're complaining about. I said, let's go get records because they love their record players. And I said, we'll buy you a needle and we'll find a store, dang it. And uh, then we'll segue into just all of us getting haircuts uh, at Fantastic Sam's. And then uh, after that, we'll get Chipotle. So we did that. We went to a store Got a bunch of records. They sent me to another store to buy a, an actual needle, which of course became hugely expensive uh, because the specialty store deals with high, high-end equipment, but they're the only ones that's going to have a needle. And uh, so that was ridiculous. I spent a lot of money on that thing. But got to make those kids happy. Then we all got haircuts. Uh, I got myself one of those really short on the sides and back and kind of long on the top hipstery haircuts, which is sad for me because I'm a middle-aged man. But uh, I said, I want something that looks a little bit of its times. And they said, what if we gave you the hipster haircut but kind of toned down so it's not so over the top? And I said, okay. And uh, the guy who was cutting my hair at Fantastic Sam's had a curly little mustache. And, And he also looked very old and sad. And so as we were talking uh, about divorce, which was weird because my kids were also getting their hair cut. So I was sort of trying to change the subject. But boy, was he focused on it. I found out that he only graduated one year before me. And uh, it was like two people from two different worlds talking. So I wonder what happened in that poor man's life to lead him to try to look really cool and fashionable, but also sad and tired and old with his mustache at Fantastic Sam's. I'll never know. Uh, The conversation kind of died when I didn't want to talk about divorce. Uh, Then he didn't really have anything to say at all. Uh, After that, we got Chipotle, delivered from whatever one of those delivery services are that go and get it for you and then bring it to your house. Uh, And a weird little soft boy 
came to my door, and he he looked real sensitive and studious and bookish. And uh, I said, do I have to sign anything? And he goes, no, no. And he turned around and walked back to his car. So that was pretty weird. Uh, this weekend, uh, tonight, get together with my boys, and we're going to go hang out. Uh, one of them is going to come here, and if uh, if I can get him drunk enough, maybe I can get him to be on my next episode, which might be too embarrassing, and I won't want to publish it. Uh, then after that, it's just yard work. I got a whole backyard I got to fix. Real, real messed up, but uh, it's happening this weekend with the help of my brother-in-law and my brother-in-law's brothers, my brother-brother-in-law's. Eh, that's pretty much it. I don't know anything else. I'm just uh, going to leave a lot of dead air here at the end. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself who are these people who's the guy with a labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Oh, I know what I forgot to say. Uh, I mentioned about how I set up a YouTube channel to put my stuff up there. Uh, and pretty much ignore it. I just throw it up there and I never look at it again. Um, apparently, I've been demonetized even though I never turned on the money. Because, just like Twitch, it keeps assuming that the music I have is not public domain music. Which it is! So I got flagged for copyright violation and says that I will not get any money, which is fine, because I never turned that on to begin with. Uh, YouTube's just the most annoying thing in the world. So back to the point. In our last chapter, Chapter 11, The Great Adventure, uh, we learned that Avis's dad couldn't get any work. He uh, sort of got offered a position that he didn't take out of pride, which, in his situation, was dumb. Uh, he relied on that book. He thought that book was going to be his way to make money by his own standards. And uh, that did not work out at all. Uh, still kind of weirded out by he tried to cash in with his Sierra Mines stock uh, just because his being... It's like saying I'm against oppression of uh, the working class, but I've got a lot of stock in Nike that, you know, uses a lot of child labor. So I'll, uh, but I'll cash in on that and just live on that for a while and then really get the message out about 
oppression. So that seemed a little weird to me. Uh, They moved to a San Francisco slum. Uh, And Avis does nothing to contribute. Uh, Ernest is still floating around in their slum, not eating as many bologna sandwiches as he was used to in the mansion. Uh, But he's trying to get a job as a senator. Avis adds nothing. She just kind of keeps floating around, uses what little of Dad's money there might be to uh, just go out and get coffee and stuff. Uh, We learn that Avis uh, gets married to Ernest, which should be cute. I mean, it's the perfect marriage. She worships him as if he's Christ, which is called out multiple times. And, uh, And he just is cool with being worshipped and it doesn't bother him. That's uh, a relationship that he feels is completely healthy. And um, she gives him a pet name. Or Ernest gives her a pet name, which is his sweet metaphysician and his smallest dualist. Uh, Both horrible and pretentious uh, pet names. Uh, And she calls him the immortal materialist. So that's weird. Um, and we got to read the worst poem ever. The worst poem I've ever read. Basically saying that I'm a god on earth. And you can't stop me. I'm too beautiful and too pure. And here I go. So, that was chapter 11. Why don't we dive right into chapter 12. Chapter 12. The Bishop. It was after my marriage that I chanced upon Bishop Morehouse. But I must give the events in their proper sequence. After his outbreak at the IPH convention, the bishop, being a gentle soul, had yielded to the friendly pressure brought to bear upon him, and had gone away on vacation. But he returned more fixed than ever in his determination to preach the message of the church which is to scoop up prostitutes in your broham. To the consternation of his congregation, his first sermon was quite similar to the address he had given before the convention. Again he said, and at length, and with distressing detail, that the church had wandered away from the master's teaching, and that mammon had been insatiated in the place of Christ. Instated? Instated in the place of Christ. And the result was, mm, eh, willy-nilly, that he was led away to a private sanitarium for mental disease, while in the newspapers appeared pathetic accounts of his mental breakdown and of the saintliness of his character. He was held a prisoner at the sanitarium. I called repeatedly but was denied access to him and I was terribly impressed by the tragedy of a sane, normal, saintly man being crushed by the brutal will of society. For the bishop was sane and pure and noble. As Ernest said, all that was the matter with him was that he had incorrect notions of biology and sociology. Oh, God, this guy. He just doesn't stop. He's always on. Also, I love that Ernest basically destroyed this bishop by showing him the horrors of the world that we never really get to learn about, but he sent the bishop off on all these like midnight runs to show him depravity and whatever else. And um, So Ernest is single-handedly 
responsible for this man's breakdown and being taken away to a sanitarium. He doesn't really care. I mean, if he really wanted to show him this stuff, he could have shown it to him in a way that was like a little bit more gentle, kind of ease him into it. But instead, he probably just, who knows what he did, but he did it apparently too fast and too quick, too furious. And uh, now he's blaming that he just has incorrect notions of biology and sociology. Good old Ernest. He's going to make a great husband and father. And because of his incorrect notions, he had not gone about it in the right way to rectify manners. What terrified me was the bishop's helplessness. If he persisted in the truth as he saw it, he was doomed to an insane ward. And he could do nothing. His money, his position, his culture could not save him. His views were perilous to society. And society could not conceive that such perilous views could be the product of a sane mind. Or at least, it seems to me, such was society's attitude. But the bishop, in spite of the gentleness and purity of his spirit, was possessed of guile. He apprehended clearly his danger, and he saw himself caught in a web, and he tried to escape from it. Denied help from his friends, such as Father and Ernest, and I could have given, he was left to battle for himself alone. And in the enforced solitude of the sanitarium, he recovered. He became sane again. His eyes ceased to see visions. His brain was purged of the fancy that it was the duty of society to feed the master's lambs. As I say, he became well, quite well, and the newspapers and the church people hailed his return with joy. I went once to his church. The sermon was of the same order as the ones he had preached long before his eyes had seen visions. I was disappointed, shocked. Had society then beaten him into submission? Was he a coward? Had he been bulldozed into recanting? Or had the strain been too great for him? And had he meekly surrendered to the juggernaut of the established? I called upon him in his beautiful home. He was woefully changed. He was thinner, and there were lines on his face which I had never seen before. He was manifestly distressed by my coming. He plucked nervously at his sleeve as we talked. His eyes were restless, fluttering here, there, and everywhere, and refusing to meet mine. His mind seemed preoccupied, and there were strange pauses in his conversation, abrupt changes of topic and in consecutiveness that was bewildering. Could this, then, be the firm, poised, Christ-like man I had known? She's always calling everyone Christ. With pure limped eyes and a gaze steady and unfaltering at his soul. He had been manhandled. He had been cowed into subjection. His spirit was too gentle. It had not been mighty enough to face the organized wolf pack of society. I felt sad. Unutterably sad. He talked ambiguously and was so apprehensive of what I might say that I had not the heart to chastise him. Chastise him. Okay, it's weird. I guess I've never seen chastise written before. All right, whatever. He spoke in a faraway manner of his illness, and we talked disjointedly about the church and alternations in the organ and about petty charities. And he saw me depart with such 
evident relief that I should have laughed had not my heart been so full of tears. Oh, the poor little hero, exclamation point. If I had only known, exclamation point, he was battling like a giant, and I did not even guess it. Alone, all alone, in the midst of millions of his fellow men, he was fighting his fight, torn by the, his horror of the asylum and the fidelity to truth and the uh, right, he clung steadfastly to truth and the right, but so alone was he that he did not dare to trust even me. We had learned, he had learned his lesson well, too well. But I was soon to know. One day the bishop disappeared. He had told nobody that he was going away, and as the days went by, he did not reappear. There was much gossip to the effect that he had committed suicide while temporarily deranged, but this idea was dispelled when it was learned that he had sold all his possessions, his city mansion, his country house in Menlo Park, his paintings and collections, and even his cherished library. It was patent that he had made a clean and secret sweep of everything before he disappeared. This happened during the time when calamity had overtaken us in our own affairs, and it was not till we were well settled in our new home that we had opportunity to really to wonder and speculate about the bishop's doings. Even then, everything was suddenly made clear. Early one morning, while it was yet twilight, I had run across the street and into the butcher shop to get some chops for Ernest's supper. We called the last meal of the day... Quote, supper in our new environment. Just at the moment I came out of the butcher shop, a man emerged from the corner grocery that stood alongside. A queer sense of the familiarity made me look again, but the man had turned and was walking rapidly away. There was something about the slope of the shoulders and the fringe of silver hair between a coat collar and the slouch hat that aroused vague memories. Instead of crossing the street, I hurried after the man. I quickened my pace, trying not to think the thoughts that had formed unbidden in my brain. No, it was impossible. It could not be, not in those faded overalls, too long in the legs and frayed at the bottoms. I paused, laughed at myself, and almost abandoned the chase. But the haunting familiarity of those shoulders and that silver hair! Exclamation point. Again, I hurried on. As I passed him, I shot a keen look at his face. Then I whirled around abruptly and confronted M. The Bishop. He halted with equal abruptness and gasped. A large paper bag in his right hand fell to the sidewalk. It burst, and about his feet and mine bounced and rolled a flood of potatoes. He looked at me with surprise and alarm, then he seemed to wilt away. The shoulders drooped with dejection, and he uttered a deep sigh. I held out my hand. He shook it, but his hand felt clammy. He cleared his throat in embarrassment, and I could see the sweat starting on the on his forehead. It was evident that he was badly frightened. The potatoes, he murmured faintly, they are precious. <laughs> Between us, we picked them up and replaced them in the broken bag. 
which he now held carefully in the hollow of his arm. I tried to tell him my gladness at meeting him and that he must come right home with me. Father will be rejoiced to see you, I said. We live only a stone's throw away. I can't, he said. I must be going. Goodbye. He looked apprehensively about him as though dreading discovery and made an attempt to walk on. Uh, tell me where you live and I shall call later, he said, when he saw that I walked beside him and that it was my intention to stick to him now that he was found. No, I answered firmly, you must come now. Uh, he looked at the potatoes spilling on his arm, at the small parcels on his other arm. Really, it's impossible, he said. Forgive me for my rudeness, if you only knew. He looked as if he were going to break down, and at the next moment he had himself in control. Besides, this food, he went on, is a sad case, it's terrible. She's an old woman, I must take it to her at once. She's suffering from want of it. I must go at once, you understand. Then I'll return, I promise you. Then let me go with you, I volunteered. Is it far? He sighed again and surrendered. Only two blocks, he said. Let us hasten. Under the bishop's guidance, I learned something of my own neighborhood. I had not dreamed such wretchedness and misery existed in it. Well, she said she lived in a slum. Of course, this was because I did not concern myself with charity. I had become convinced that Ernest was right when he sneered at charity as a poulticizing poulticizing of an ulcer. <laughs> of course, he's got to be a jerk. He's got like an opinion about everything. Remove the ulcer was his remedy. Give to the worker his product. Pension his soldiers, those who grow honorably old in their toil, and there will be no need for charity. Convinced of this, I toiled with him at the revolution and did not exhaust my energy in alleviating the social ills that continuously arose from the injustice of the system. I followed the bishop into a small room, ten by twelve in a rear tenement, and there we found a little old German woman, sixty-four years old, the bishop said. She was surprised at seeing me, but she nodded a pleasant Reading and went on sewing on the pair of men's trousers in her lap. Beside her, on the floor, was a pile of trousers. The bishop discovered there was neither coal nor kindling and went out to buy some. I took up a pair of trousers and examined her work. Six cents, lady, she said, nodding her head gently while she went on stitching. She stitched, slowly, but never did she cease from stitching. She seemed mastered by the verb, quote, to stitch. For all that work, I asked, is that what they pay? How long does it take you? Yes, she answered, that's what they pay. Six cents for finishing, two hours sewing on each pair. But the boss doesn't know that, she added quickly, betraying a fear of getting him into trouble. I'm... Oh... Sorry, I accidentally went backwards. I'm slow. I've got the rheumatism in my hands. Girls work much faster. They finish in half that time. The boss is kind. He lets me take the work home, and now that I am old and the noise of the machine bothers my head, if it wasn't for his kindness, I'd starve. 
Yes, those who work in the shop get eight cents. But what can you do? There's not enough work for the young and the old have no chance. Often one pair is all I can get. Some, sometimes, like today, I'm given eight pair to finish before night. I asked her the hours she worked, and she said it depended on the season. In the summer, when there is a rush order, I work from five in the morning to nine at night. But in the winter, it is too cold. The hands do not early get over the stiffness. Then you must work later, till after midnight sometimes. Yes, it has been a bad summer. The hard times. God must be angry. This is the first work the boss has given me in a week. It is true, one cannot eat much when there is no work, and I am used to it. I have sowed all my life in the old country and here in San Francisco, 33 years. If you are sure of the rent, it is all right. A houseman is very kind, but he must have his rent. It is fair. He only charges $3 for this room. Hmm. That is cheap, but it is not easy for you to find all three dollars every month. She ceased talking and, nodding her head, went on stitching. You have to be careful as to how to spend your earnings, I suggested. She nodded emphatically. <laughs> After the rent, it's not so bad. Of course, you can't buy meat and there is no milk for the coffee. But always there is one meal a day, and often two. She said the last proudly. There was a smack of success in her words. But as she stitched on in silence, I noticed the sadness in her pleasant eyes and the droop of her mouth. And the look in her eyes became far away. She rubbed the dimness hastily out of him. It interfered with her stitching. No, it is not the hunger that makes your heart ache. She explained, you get used to being hungry. It is for my child that I cry. It was the machine that killed her. Ooh. It was true, she worked hard, but I cannot understand. She was strong, and she was young, only 40. And she worked only 30 years. She began young, it's true, but my man died. The boiler exploded down at the works. And that's where we, well, and what were we to do? She was ten, but she was very strong. But the machine killed her. Well, then, all right. Yes, it did. It killed her, <laughs> and, and she was the fastest worker in the shop. She keeps, like, making a statement and punctuating with, and it killed her. I have thought about it often, and I know. That is why I cannot work in the shop. The machine bothers my head always. I hear it saying, I did it. I did it. <laughs> and it says that all day long. And then I think of my daughter, and I cannot work. The moistness was in her old eyes again, and she had to wipe it away before she could go on stitching. I heard the bishop stumbling up the stairs, and I opened the door. What a spectacle he was! On his back he carried half a sack of coal with a kindling on top. Some of the coal dust had coated his face, and uh, the sweat from his exertions was running in streaks. He dropped his burden in the corner by the stove and wiped his face on a coarse bandana handkerchief. I could scarcely accept the verdict of my senses. The bishop, black as a coal heaver, 
In a working man's cheap cotton shirt, one button was missing from the throat, it says in parentheses, and in overalls, exclamation point, that was the most incongruous of all. The overalls, frayed at the bottoms, dragged down at the heels, and held up by a narrow leather belt around the hips, such as laborers wear. Though the bishop was warm, the poor swollen hands of the old woman were already cramping with the cold. And before we left her, the bishop had built the fire. While I peeled the potatoes and put them on to boil, I was to learn as time went by that there were many cases similar to hers, and many worse, hidden away in the monstrous depths of the tenements in my neighborhood. We got back to find Ernest alarmed by my absence. After the first surprise of greeting was over, the bishop leaned back in his chair, stretched out his overall-covered legs, and actually sighed a comfortable sigh. We were the first of his old friends he had met since his disappearance, he told us, and during the intervening weeks he must have suffered greatly from loneliness. He told us much, though he told us more of the joy he had experienced in doing the master's bidding. For truly now, he said, I am feeding his lambs, and I have learned a great lesson. The soul cannot be ministered to till the stomach is appeased. His lambs must be fed bread and butter and potatoes and meat. After that, and only after that, are their spirits ready for more refined nourishment. He ate heartily of the supper. I cooked. Never! Had he had such an appetite at our table in the old days, ungrateful, comfortable jerk, he, we spoke of it, and he said that he had never been so healthy in his life. I, I walk always now, he said, and a blush was on his cheek at the thought of the time when he rode in his carriage, his broham, as though it were a sin not lightly to be laid. My health is better for it, he added hastily, and I am very happy, indeed most happy. At last I am a consecrated spirit. And yet there was in his face a permanent pain, the pain of the world that he was now taking to himself. He was seeing life in the raw, and it was a different life from what he had known within the printed books of his library. And you are responsible for all this, young man, he said directly to Ernest. Oh, but he's thanking him. Ernest was embarrassed and awkward. I... I warned you, he faltered. No, you misunderstand, the bishop answered. I speak not in reproach, but in gratitude. I have you to thank for showing me my path. You led me from theories about life to life itself. You pulled aside the veils from social shams. You were light in my darkness, but now I too see the light. And I am very happy, only... He hesitated painfully, and in his eyes, fear leaped large. Only the persecution. I harm no one. Only, oh, not only, why will they not let me alone? But it is not that it is the nature of the persecution. I shouldn't mind if they cut my flesh with stripes or burn me at the stake or crucified me head downward. But it is the asylum that frightens me. Think of it. Of me, an asylum for the insane. It's revolting. 
I saw some of the cases at the sanitarium. They were violent. My blood chills when I think of it. And to be imprisoned for the rest of my life amid scenes of screaming madness. No! Exclamation point. No! Exclamation point. Not that. Not that. Two exclamation points. It was pitiful. His hands shook. His whole body quivered and shrank away from the picture he had conjured. But the next moment he was calm. Forgive me, he said simply. It is my wretched nerves, and if the master's work leads me there, so be it. Who am I to complain? I felt like crying aloud as I looked at him. Oh, great bishop, oh, hero, God's hero. As the evening wore on, we learned more of his doings. I sold my house, my houses, rather, he said, and all my other possessions. I knew I must do it secretly, else they would have taken everything away from me. That would have been terrible. I often marvel these days at the immense quantity of potatoes two or three hundred thousand dollars will buy, or bread, or meat, or coal, or and kindling. He turned to Ernest. You're right, young man. Labor is dreadfully underpaid. I never did a bit of work in my life except to appeal aesthetically to the Pharisees. I thought I was preaching the message, and yet I was worth half a million dollars. Oh, he's bragging again. First he brags about how expensive his houses are, and now he's bragging about his worth. He's still got it, man. It's still in him. I never knew what half a million dollars meant until I realized how much potatoes. He's really focused on potatoes and bread and butter and meat it could buy. And then I realized something more. I realized that all those potatoes and that bread and butter and meat were mine and that I had not worked to make them. Then it was clear to me. Someone else had worked and made them and been robbed of them. And when I came down amongst the poor, I found those who had been robbed and who were hungry and wretched because they had been robbed. We drew him back to his narrative. The money I have deposited in many different banks under different names. Oh, they're going to go after his money because they want it. It can never be taken away from me because it can never be found. (laughs) And it is so good, that money. It buys so much food. I I never knew before what money was good for. I wish we could... Get some of it for the propaganda. Oh, here we go. Ernest said wistfully. It would do immense good. Do you think so? The bishop said. I do not have much faith in politics. In fact, I'm afraid I do not understand politics. Ernest was delicate in such matters. Oh, of trying to get money from people? He did not repeat his suggestion, though he knew only too well the sore straits the Socialist Party was in through lack of money. I sleep in cheap lodging houses, the bishop went on, bragging. Then I... But I am afraid, and I never stay long in one place. Also, I rent two rooms in working men's houses, and... Different quarters of the city is a great extravagance, I know, but it is necessary. I make up for it in part by doing my own cooking, though sometimes I can get something to eat in the cheap coffee houses. And I have made a discovery. Tamales are very good when the air grows chilly late at night, only they are so expensive. But I have discovered a place where I can get three for ten cents. (laughs) 
They are not so good as the others, but they are very warming. And so I have at last found my work in the world, thanks to you. Oh, he's not going to give him the money. It is the master's work. He looked at me, and his eyes twinkled. You caught me feeding his lambs, you know, and of course you'll keep my secret. He spoke carelessly enough, but there was real fear behind the speech. He promised to call upon us again, but a week later we read in the newspaper of the sad case of Bishop Morehouse, who had been committed to the Napa Asylum. Oh, that's the one with the insanity experts. And for whom there were still hopes held out. In vain we tried to see him, to have his case reconsidered or investigated. Nor could we learn anything about him except the... The reiterated statements that slight hopes were still held for his recovery. Christ told the rich young man to sell all he had, Ernest said bitterly. The bishop obeyed Christ's injunction and got locked up in a madhouse. Times have changed since Christ's day. A rich man today who gives all he has to the poor is crazy. There's no discussion. Society has spoken. And there you have it, a real hot, hot, hot chapter. Uh, let's get down to brass tacks. What did we learn today in chapter 12, the bishop? Uh, he gets sent to the loony bin. Uh, and then after that, he disappears. He does come back, and the papers uh, praise him for his recovery. Because they just love, uh, sort of like Room 101 in 1984 where you get converted and they celebrate you but then uh, they just kill you anyways uh, his is a longer process uh, he disappears then and he hides all his money and then Avis finds him when she's out getting meat for her man when he comes back uh, and then we find out that potatoes are real real precious to the bishop and uh, after that when the bishop shows up at their place and talks to them, uh, he talks at length about how potatoes are so important. Uh, he takes her to go meet an old woman who he's getting the potatoes for, and uh, she gets all up on men's slacks. Uh, and also, she really hates this machine that killed her daughter, because when she works around the machine, it's constantly saying, I killed your daughter, over and over, all day long. Which I'm sure is pretty frustrating. Uh, the bishop actually thanks Ernest for pretty much ruining his life. Uh, he could use his money and influence in other ways within the system to try and change things until the big revolution comes and makes the world better. Uh, but instead, everyone can just suffer and wait because he has gone through this journey with Ernest and ruined his own life, and now he's hiding his money and he's in hiding himself. Uh, then... When he tells Ernest, I've got a bunch of money hidden away that no one can get at, Ernest says, boy, I'd like that money, or my cause would like that money. Not really thinking of the bishop or what the bishop's doing is a good thing, just kind of thinking of himself. And uh, then the bishop gets locked up again in the Napa Asylum with all those insanity experts. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
I know I'm starting to enjoy this book a little bit more. Uh, too bad the bishop's got to go away. He was the one character I actually uh, sort of enjoyed or liked. But he's gone now. So hopefully uh, I can care about somebody else. Because right now Avis and Ernest are still just kind of mysterious caricatures. And I'm waiting for them to get fleshed out. But uh, until then, I have been Glenn Nuzzles for you.